the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. After having enjoyed a wonderful holiday, I hope you did the same. We're glad to be back in studio. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. James Blend is producing. Well, today we're going to talk with Duran Spoo. He's the author of The Good Book. Well, not the good book, but a good book about the good book, 40 chapters that reveal the Bible's biggest ideas. If you're not familiar with the 66 books of the Bible and how they're configured, they're not chronological, some are uh, poetry, some are history, uh, there are the epistles and the gospels, this is designed to help you get the, the big idea in the scriptures that just might inspire you to open them with greater understanding and uh, work your way through the actual good book. So we're going to talk with uh, Pastor Spoo when he joins us later this hour. Also, we're going to talk with Brittany Hughes. She's with the Media Research Center TV. Uh, We're going to talk about interpreting Planned Parenthood's annual report, which is about six months, five, six months late. Um, But what it says about the organization and the scrutiny it's uh, been under for the last, uh, well, year, really, a little more than a year, uh, and its future. So she'll join us at about 530 in our second hour of today's program. So we're looking forward to that. Well, in the news, and certainly there's a lot to talk about, both national and local. We'll get to as much of it as we can. North Korea was eyed as the United States conducted a missile intercept test we learned was successful today. The Pentagon's missile defense test uh, had been planned for years, but nobody planned on just how pivotal its timing would be. Just two days after the latest North Korean provocation and with heightened concerns that the rogue regime is inching closer to a long-range missile capable of carrying a nuclear weapon, the Pentagon for the first time attempted to destroy a target simulating the speed and range of a potential North Korean intercontinental ballistic missile. It will test the system against the ICBM type target and will represent the longest intercept test of a target to date in the program. That's a quote from Vice Admiral James uh, Syring, director of the Missile Defense Agency, before the test was conducted. Well, in the test, the results of which won't be known until Wednesday, although we heard earlier today it was successful, an unarmed rocket lifting off from the the Marshall Islands in the Pacific Ocean, representing a would-be North Korean uh, threat. The interceptor then blasted off from the, an underground missile silo at Vandenberg Airport, uh, rather Air Force Base, North Los Angeles, on a mission to take out the dummy target over the Pacific Ocean. In the final stage, hundreds of miles above Earth, a kill vehicle was set to close in on the target, navigating through space with uh, thrusters powered by real-time ground updates. Ultimately, it, it uh, attempts to destroy the target by sheer velocity, both uh, vehicles moving at thousands of miles per hour. It's the proverbial bullet hitting a bullet. Uh, According to uh, Admiral Syringe, uh, I have complete confidence in the system and the warfighters operating the system, he said in an interview at the headquarters in Fort uh, Belvoir, Virginia. About half of the previous tests of this system 
this ground-based mid-course defense system have failed, attracting criticism from the Government Accountability Office and the Pentagon's own weapons testing office, which says the system has a limited capability to defend the U.S. against an ICBM attack. So we don't know, don't know quite how to interpret the outcome of today's uh, test. But uh, following the test, the report simply said the U.S. military successfully shot down a mock nuclear warhead, simulating the speed and range of the potential North Korean intercontinental ballistic missile. Uh, in a statement, the agency said an unarmed rocket launched from the Marshall Islands in the Pacific Ocean was destroyed by a ground-based interceptor launched from uh, the Air Force Base in Southern California as it traveled outside Earth's atmosphere. The successful test was the first of its kind in nearly three years. It came two days as I mentioned, after North Korea tested a Scud-type ballistic missile that landed in Japan's maritime economic zone in the Sea of Japan. Well, this system is vitally important, they say, to the defense of our homeland, and this test demonstrates that we have the capability, credible deterrent against a very real threat. Now, this came on the eve of North Korea warning of a bigger gift package to the U.S. after their missile test two days ago. Well, the leader Kim Jong-un warned today of sending a bigger gift gift package, in quotes, to the United States after successfully launching its third missile test in recent weeks. North Korea's officials uh, in their news agency quoted the rogue leader saying that Pyongyang uh, would continue to develop its missile program in preparation for a possible attack. He expressed the conviction that it would make a greater leap forward in its spirit to send a bigger gift package to the Yankees. Well, North Korea launched a, a short-range Scud ballistic missile from the eastern coastal town uh, late Sunday. The missile flew for six minutes until it landed in the Sea of Japan, according to a statement from the U.S. command. Meanwhile, a statement made by uh, General Mattis uh, said this, a conflict with North Korea would probably be the worst kind of fighting in most people's lifetime. He's the Defense Secretary, James Mattis, speaking to John Dickerson, host of CBS's Face the Nation, in an interview taped on Saturday. Why do I say this? He went on to say rhetorically, the North Korean regime has hundreds of artillery cannons, rocket launchers within range of one of the most uh, densely populated cities on Earth, which is the capital of South Korea. We're working with the international community to deal with this issue, the uh, uh, a defense secretary went on to say this regime is a threat to the region, to Japan, to South Korea. And in the event of war, they would uh, bring danger to China and to Russia as well. But the bottom line is it would be a catastrophic war if this turns into combat, if we are to if we are not able to resolve this situation through diplomatic means. Well, on Monday, two uh, days after Mattis spoke, the North Koreans carried out yet another ballistic missile launch. Uh, at least the 11th this year, this one involving a short-range Scud-class projectile that landed in Japanese water. So this is a very sobering conflict in the making, and one can only hope and pray that we can find a diplomatic solution, although this kind of attention-getting behavior is not unusual under the Kim Jong-un administration, if you can refer to it uh, in that way. Um, So this is a continuation of what we've seen now for years, but it is Uh, escalating and does seem to pose, as the uh, uh, defense secretary said, uh, a great uh, challenge, not only to the United States, but to our allies in that region as well. Well, Donald Trump has uh, declined, abstained, if you will, from a G7 pledge to uphold the 195-nation Paris Accord on climate change. On Twitter, the president said he would make a decision on whether the U.S. would remain in agreement this week. 
Uh, Nick Loris, writing on the, uh, uh, the subject, says the high price tag of Paris will generate meaningless climate benefits. The U.S. regulations alone would increase energy costs for U.S. families and businesses, causing an overall average shortfall of nearly 400,000 jobs and a total income loss of more than 20,000 for a family of four by the year 2035. The path to reduce greenhouse gases is not a feel-good international agreement with hollow promises and redistributionist policies. We'll talk more about that in just a few moments. But the moments rather, but the president did decline to endorse the Paris agreement uh, when meeting with the G7 and said within the week would determine whether or not to sign on to that agreement um, at uh, some later point. But we'll uh, get into that in just a few moments. We're also going to talk about the um, kerfuffle, if you will, between Trump's um, uh, rather Germany's Merkel and President Trump clashing over trade, NATO and Western values. And also looking forward to a conversation uh, with Pastor Duran Spoo. He's the author of The Good Book. Um, it's 40 chapters that reveal the Bible's biggest ideas. If you want to understand what it's generally about, well, this is a book to help you over the course of 40 days to do something of an overview. So we'll talk with him about that resource, which is for an individual or small group. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we are back 19 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Toyota of Vancouver. Well, President Trump said Saturday that he'll make a decision next week on whether to withdraw the U.S. from the Paris Climate Agreement after resisting uh, some intense lobbying by leaders of other industrialized nations at the G7 summit in Sicily, Italy, this weekend. I will make my final decision on the Paris Accord next week, he said on Twitter. As Mr. Uh, Trump wrapped up two days of meeting at the G7, the U.S. didn't join the climate section in an official dispatch issued by the other members of the group. The document said that although the leaders of Canada, France, Germany, Italy, Japan and the United Kingdom and the presidents of the European Council and the European Commission were reaffirming their commitment to the Paris Agreement, the U.S. is in the process of reviewing its policies on climate change and on the Paris Agreement and thus is not in a position to join the consensus on these topics, end quote. Well, former President Obama signed the Paris Agreement to limit carbon emissions in 2015, but Mr. Trump is weighing a move to pull the U.S. out of the deal. He promised to do so during his campaign last year. Others are lobbying for the U.S. Senate, since it is in uh, in total uh, a treaty, to submit it to the Senate, where we know it would not pass, but submit it to the Senate for them to do what the Constitution demands in the case of a uh, treaty. Mr. Trump faced three straight days of pressure from European leaders not to pull the U.S. out of the accord. German Chancellor Angela Merkel said that the uh, group's discussion with Mr. Trump Friday on the climate change deal were controversial and very intensive. The president has said he'll make up his mind about the Paris Accord after returning home from the G7 summit. White House National Economic Council Director Gary Cohn said Friday that the timetable hasn't changed. The leaders did not uh, did want to know what his time frame was. And Mr. Trump says, look, Trump rather says, look, this is something where I want to get to the right decision. I'd rather take my time. I'd rather understand the issues and I'd rather go. Uh, get the right decision on that, Mr. Cohn said, uh, referring to the president. He also said the president view his views are evolving, which is sort of a frightening word when someone campaigns on one thing and then their views evolve. We've seen that in the last administration. He came here to learn. Uh, he went on to say he came here to get smarter. He came here to hear world leaders views, Mr. Cohn said. 
Well, that may take more time than those two days permitted. But the White House National Security Advisor, H.R. McMaster, emphasized that Mr. Trump will ultimately base his decision on what he thinks is best for the American economy uh, rather than uh, a global perspective on the subject. Meanwhile, Germany and the United States emerged from the Memorial Day weekend uh, in a war of words as Chancellor Angela Merkel and her coalition partners attacked America's reliability without uh, uh, noting America. Uh, specifically um, as the world power and President Trump fired back, of course, on Twitter. Uh, Angela Merkel said at a beer tent rally in Munich Sunday that Germany cannot fully rely on and didn't mention the United States, although uh, many of the U.S. news reports uh, inserted that, uh, and that continental Europe really must take our fate into our own hands, which essentially is what President Trump has been encouraging them to do, not only rhetorically, but in terms of uh, finances and other means as well. Uh, The um, upcoming September election um, and her chief rival, uh, Angela Merkel's chief rival, Mr. Schultz, said the chancellor represents all of us at summits, NATO and G7 like these, and went on to say, I reject with outrage the way this man referring to Trump uh, takes it upon himself to treat the head of our country's government. Well, Trump countered on Tuesday, renewing his allegation that Germany doesn't pay its full 2% of GDP share toward defense, a requirement of NATO membership. He also uh, wrapped the European economic powerhouse for its trade policies. Well, he was accurate on both. I suppose you're not supposed to mention it in polite company. But he went on to say that we have a massive trade deficit with Germany, plus they pay far less than they should on NATO's military. Very bad for U.S. This will change. Well, economists agree with Trump that the U.S. Um, trade gap favors Germany by $67.8 billion per year. That trade deficit is the second largest after China's $310 billion advantage over the U.S. Well, Trump has uh, confronted Merkel over her country's failure to meet the NATO guideline for defense expenditures now and before. Germany is one of the 23 NATO members that has not met the 2% goal of defense spending they've agreed to. The European Economic Powerhouse ranked 15th among NATO members, spending more than 1.2% of its gross national product on military defense. The U.S., Greece, Poland, Britain, and Estonia are the only NATO members who meet or exceed NATO's criteria for armed forces spending. A political story published last week titled Trump's um, uh, Trump's right about Germany said Merkel's economic policies really are hurting the U.S. It's not the first time the anti-American rhetoric has played a role in uh, German election campaigns. Former Social Democratic Chancellor Gerhard Schroeder, he mobilized voters around anti-American sentiments to win the 2002 election. In his memoir, Decision Points, uh, President George W. Bush accused Schroeder of uh, reneging on Germany's uh, support for U.S. in the Iraq War. That touched off a war of words between Bush and Germany, then uh, Germany's then rather justice minister. When he was foreign minister, Germany's current social democratic president, Frank Walter Steinmeier, called Trump a hate preacher. Steinmeier's successor as foreign minister, the social democratic Sigmar Gabriel, has pivoted away from the U.S. and toward the Islamic Republic of Iran. Just days after the U.S. and other world powers reached a nuclear deal with Iran in 2015 to curb the uh, atomic program, Gabriel went to Iran with a delegation of business leaders. He made a second trip last year to jumpstart business deals with Iran. Now, Angela Merkel may not like Donald Trump, but Germany does need Donald Trump in that the uh, Germany needs the United States. So moving forward, it will be very interesting to see what happens next. 
Well, the question is emerging uh, as the president approaches his sixth month in uh, office. Whom will the president trust? Uh, It's far easier for a president to find people who will be loyal to him than it is to find those in whom he can invest his own loyalty. But it's also far more important. In the Trump White House, the running assumption is that the only people who enjoyed that kind of status with the president were his two family members serving as senior advisors, his daughter Ivanka and her husband, Jared Kushner. But as National Review's Andy McCarthy points out, Kushner's status as the Um, uh, The crab closest to the top of the bucket, as they put it, is at the very least much imperiled by the the revelation that of his missteps with Kremlin communications, if in fact they exist. Well, the um, crustaceans over which he climbed uh, will now happily drag him back down to the bottom, especially if he's lost the trust of his father-in-law. So writes Chris Steyerwalt in his very clever manner. Although he, his intermediaries, um, or rather through his intermediaries, Kushner uh, says his intentions were good, essentially attributing his mistakes uh, to his amateur status, but whether it was to uh, the malign attempt uh, intent, uh, his critics claim, or simply innocent blundering that set Kushner up to be embarrassed by the Russians in the American press, the damage is done. And the question is, where does it go uh, from here? Well, the National Review's Andy McCarthy reports that the uh, Putin regime is hostile to the United States. Donald Trump's infatuation with forging an alliance with Russia, which, by the way, predates this administration. You remember the reset button with uh, Hillary Clinton. Um, has always struck me as reckless, occasionally repugnant, and always hopelessly naive. Similarly naive and obnoxious to the, to the American tradition of, his, of uh, resisting royalty is President Trump's reliance in major matters of policy on his son-in-law and daughter, two young people who have little, if any, experience in many of our swelling areas of responsibility. Put another way, would Jared Kushner be a key senior policy advisor to any president of the United States other than his father-in-law? The two streams of naivete collided in December of 2016. Kushner, then 36 and a scion of a wealthy family, is well-educated and acquainted with the hardball ways of New York real estate business and newspaper publishing. He has no national security or diplomatic experience, however, but was nonetheless chosen to represent the then-president-elect at a Trump Tower meeting with Russian ambassador to the United States. That would be Sergei Kislyak, a wily Soviet apparatchik, turned Putin operative who has been at the game of picking America's pocket for longer than Kushner has been alive. Retired General Michael Flynn, who was slated to become Trump's national security advisor, was also at the meeting. On the agenda was the establishment of a backdoor channel for Trump administration dealings with the Kremlin. In particular, according to the New York Times, the Trump transition team wanted Flynn to have access to a Russian counterpart to discuss Syria and other issues of mutual interest. In principle, as stressed by Trump's national security advisor, H.R. McMaster, there's nothing wrong with the concept of back channels. All administrations use them. See, for instance, John um, Hendraker's report on President Obama's establishment of a back channel with the Iranian regime in 2008. By the way, the Republicans rightly criticized it at the time when it was already clear Obama would be the next president and when his pre-inauguration signaling to the mullahs undermined the Bush administration, just as the Obama administration, no doubt, no doubt rather, felt undermined by Trump's transition outreach to Putin. The United States and Russia are global competitors with large nuclear arsenals and some important mutual interests. It is often desirable for adversaries to maintain open lines for frank communication beneath all their public posturing. Obama certainly seemed to think so when in his famous hot mic mishap, he besieged Putin 
uh, factotum uh, Dmitry Medvedev to let Vlad know uh, that he'd be having more flexibility to accommodate Russia uh, on missile defense after the 2012 election was over. Well, until last fall, national security conservatives were ridiculed for agitating about Russia. So it is with uh, with back channels, which the media Democrat complex were not bothered uh, by until a Republican was elected president. To be sure, the structure of the back channel that Kushner undertook to forge is troubling, if that is the reporting about it is accurate. And so many of the reports have been retracted only on the back page rather than the front uh, page that reporting is to, must be noted is based on anonymous Washington Post sources whom the New York Times has said its own anonymous sources have not been able to corroborate. Uh, well, let's table uh, momentarily, though, um, that particular uh, point. Um, most notably, the kushner Kislyak meeting occurred in December of 2016, weeks after the election. If there had been a close working relationship between the Trump campaign and the Putin regime, a working relationship that purportedly amounted to collusion in Russia's attempt to influence the outcome of the election, then why would it be necessary to set up a back channel in December? The secret lines of communication would already have been up and running for months, and they would certainly have known, uh, been known to Kushner, Trump's closest advisor, apparently, despite his sparse policy resume, the young princeling, as West Wing rivals have taken to describing him, has been given every portfolio from the holy grail of Middle East peace to the reinvention of the sprawling $4.1 trillion per annum U.S. government. You can read more at uh, National Review on this relationship and the allegations uh, being made by The Washington Post that could not be corroborated by The New York Times. And we'll certainly continue to follow the story. 31 minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we are back 36 minutes after four o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, reading the Bible is an essential practice that can produce great wells of wisdom and passion and purpose in the Christian life. It's also one of the hardest practices to keep up because, well, readers can they can find the Bible hard to understand and bog down in details that don't seem relevant. Well, my next guest, Pastor Deron Spoo, he changes the Bible uh, reading landscape in his new book, The Good Book, 40 Chapters That Reveal the Bible's Biggest Ideas. It's designed as a 40-day journey. The Good Book opens with uh, an entire um, uh, Bible to uh, novice and veteran Bible readers alike. So if you are familiar or unfamiliar, there's something for you. In just 15 minutes a day, five days a week, readers will grasp the Bible's biggest ideas and begin to experience God more deeply and perhaps a love of his word more deeply as well. Well, the good book offers a big picture view of the Bible that will deepen readers' enthusiasm for scripture and give them confidence to apply its principles to their lives. Well, my guest, uh, Dr. or rather Deron Spoo, is the lead pastor Pastor of First Baptist Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, since pastoring, uh, he has helped First Tulsa transition from simply being a downtown church to becoming a regional church committed to urban ministry. His television devotionals, First Things First, reach about 100,000 people every week. And he joins us today to talk about his book, The Good Book, uh, 40 Chapters That Reveal the Bible's Biggest Ideas. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Georgine, thanks so much for having me on your show today. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you, you are so welcome. Now, as a pastor, you are very familiar with the struggles that people have in just opening God's Word on a regular basis and really not just uh, reading it, but comprehending and applying it. Why do you think reading the Bible is so difficult for so many believers? You know, it, it just takes time, 
And, you know, it's a big book. There are 1,186 chapters in the Bible. There's three quarters of a million words. I mean, there's just a a lot of content in the Bible. And most of the time, and I've been, you know, guilty of this as well, what what we hear in church are just sound bites, you know, Mm -hmm. just a little bit from here and there. And, And we don't know how it all fits together. We don't know what that big narrative looks like. And so... And so the good book's an effort to do that. You know, what is that big picture? And, uh, you know, Georgie and I, I grew up on Top 40 radio. So, you know, <laughs> I remember listening to my listening to my sister every every week. She would listen to Casey Kasem, you know, cut, count yeah, down the yeah. 40 greatest hits. And, and, you know, you understood music if you could understand those 40 songs. So, so that was my approach to the Bible. You know, what are the 40 most important chapters, not only a place for new new readers to start, but, but veteran readers to really get a grasp of that big picture. Now, for those of us who have been through the, uh, the entirety of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, how on earth did you choose which 40 chapters to include in the good book to give, uh, again, an overview of the, the central message and themes of, this, of the Bible? Yeah, well, and I want to be clear that these aren't my favorite chapters of the Bible, um, but I, but I believe they are the most essential chapters of the Bible. And what I what I tell people is, you know, I've not been writing this book for five years. I've been writing it for 25 years, as I have week in and week out been teaching the Bible. And, you know, just now I'm beginning to see that really big picture and, and to say, if you're going to start reading somewhere, you need to start somewhere, you know, just, just begin. But here's the really good place to start. So, so for instance, um, these 40 chapters, are divided into eight weeks of reading. You read, you know, five a week, one a day. But the whole first week is just about beginning. You know, Genesis 1, where do we come from? Uh, Genesis 3, where did sin come from? Genesis 12, the Jewish people, you know, from Abraham would come an entire people, and from this people would come one man, Jesus Christ. And so that, that first week is all about beginnings to put the rest of the story in context. And from there, you walk your readers uh, through 40 significant chapters that give the overall theme. Now, how is this designed to be used? I, we mentioned that there are 40 chapters, uh, 40 days, about 15 minutes a day. How do you suggest this resource be used either by an individual or a small group? Yeah, and, and you hit on it right there. You know, for an individual, everyone's busy, and I, and I get that, but everyone can carve out 15 minutes a day. And so in the book, there, there's actually that chapter of the Bible which is printed in the book. So you read the chapter, read the exploration. And I, you know, I, I, I'm careful to say this is not an explanation of the chapter. It's an exploration of that chapter. I am by no means uh, an expert on the Bible. I'm a fellow traveler. So here's some things that I've learned about that passage of Scripture. And then I encourage, uh, once you've read the, read the exploration, go back and read that chapter again this time with a little bit better understanding. Uh, for small groups, and I really appreciate my publisher, David C. Cook, for creating some small group material around this. It can be an eight-week study for a community group or a Sunday school class or, or even an entire church. And Kyle Eidelman and I have shared the teaching responsibility in this video-driven series. And I think that's where spiritual transformation happens is in a, a community group, in a small group where we can ask questions and and dig a little deeper into God's Word. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What ultimately is the goal? This is an overview. What do you hope will be the result of having a clearer understanding of the major themes in the Bible? Yeah, so, and if I could just tell a story for Please. this moment. The, the, this all began 
about five years ago, you know, I, I walked off the platform after a Sunday morning of teaching, and I was met by a woman who told me this was her first time in church, not, not just her first time in my church, her first time in any church in her entire life. And she looked to be about in her mid-30s. And she asked a very innocent question. She said, is there a book you guys read that can help me understand what you believe as Christians? And so she had never really connected the Bible with, with Christianity. So, so that's the right answer, is the Bible. But I didn't know for her if it would be the best answer, because I could see uh, me giving her a Bible. I felt like I could see this movie playing in my head. I could give her a Bible. She might make it through Genesis. Exodus would get a little stranger, but we would lose her in Leviticus. She would not understand the context of all that. So, so that's when I started working on this project, not as an aspiring author, but as a desperate pastor, just wanting to put this resource in the hands of people to help them not only get the big picture of Scripture, and this answers your question, the ultimate goal is that people would fall in love with God. Mm-hmm. It, it's good to know Scripture, and that's noble, but let's not stop there. I, I hope people can see the big picture of the Bible. They get a better feel for God's heart and mind and love for all of humanity. Well, you've partially answered my next question, and that is, uh, isn't this a great resource for those who have a a complete lack of uh, familiarity with the Bible and those who are yet unbelievers but want to, to, uh, you know, what's the big deal about in the Bible? And this can give them a a format that's uh, perhaps more comprehensible than than other sources might be. Yeah, that's right. And you know, as I was writing this, I, I pictured that young lady sitting across the table from me, and I had to make sure to put it in terms that she would understand. Um, but, but also, as a pastor, and this is, is shocking to me, but there are a lot of people who are in church every week that never pick up the Bible. In fact, I have a very good friend who I've known for years. I've, I've served my church for 17 years, and, and we've known each other nearly two decades. I've buried his parents. I've baptized his children. And he's just now reading through the Bible for the first time. And, and I don't judge him for that at all. But I, I, my heart aches for him because he's missed out on so many years of hearing God's voice. So not only the person coming into church for the first time, but the person who's sitting there week after week who just doesn't know where to begin. And this tool hopefully will give that impetus and that place to start. We're talking about the book titled The Good Book, 40 Chapters That Reveal the Bible's Biggest Ideas. We're going to continue our conversation in just a moment. We're talking with Pastor Deron Spoo, uh, and the book is published by David C. Cook. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 50 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking about the book, The Good Book, 40 Chapters That Reveal the Bible's Biggest Ideas. And my guest is uh, Pastor Duran Spoo. He is the uh, author and joins us uh, to continue our conversation. Now, the book is outlined in a particular way. You start out with the beginning, God is good when life gets messy, and you divide it up into various sections. Give us a, a brief overview of how uh, your book, The Good Book, is structured. Yeah, so um, so what I've done is in choosing 40 chapters from the Bible, I like symmetry. So I, I chose 20 chapters from the Older Testament that give a good feel. And, and what did Philip Yancey call the Older Testament? He called it the Bible that Jesus read. And, and I don't think there's any way we can understand the New Testament without understanding the Older Testament. So, so 20 chapters from the Older Testament going through creation, the Exodus event, 
taking parts from the literature of the Hebrew people, Job and Psalms, and then spending a week in the prophets, uh, which is some of the most difficult writing to understand in the Bible. So, so four weeks or 20 days spent, spent there in the Older Testament. Then, uh, 20 days, the next four weeks spent in the New Testament. And so, just to give a feel for that, uh, there's, there's 10 days that just cover the life of Jesus. So, so two of the chapters that I chose were John chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2. And, and those two both cover the birth of Jesus, but from very different angles. Uh, John chapter 1 talks about the eternal perspective of Christmas. You know, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. But Luke chapter 2 covers the earthly angle of things with shepherds and angels and, and wise men and so forth. And so we have two very different perspectives on that same event, but both are essential. And then in that 10 days I spend on the Gospels, you know, there's a lot of Jesus' teaching and, of course, uh, his death, burial, and resurrection. And then another week covers the history of the church through the book of Acts. You know, where, where did we come from? Where did the church come from? And where are we going? And then finally, uh, I, spent, uh, I spent the last week, the last five days, in the letters um, these are some of the great writings that are contained in that last portion of the Bible. Romans chapter 8, one of my favorite chapters. 1 Corinthians 13. Um, you know, 1 Corinthians 13, a lot of people hear that at, at weddings, but we really miss that message of love that, that's contained there. So that's just a bit of an overview. Uh, some of these chapters people will have read and heard before. Uh, others will be brand new to them, but each one is essential in its own right. And then uh, preceding each of the chapters that they'll be um, reading that are also, as we mentioned earlier, in the uh, in the book, you offer a bit of, of commentary to help um, understand what's about to be read or what's just been read. And also um, for reflection, you offer some thoughts there as well. Yeah, I think questions are, are important. And I, so at the end of each chapter, I try to ask just a little thought-provoking question. Um, you know, as I, as I look back on, on the process of of this book, one of the, the truths that struck me as most profound really comes from Genesis chapter 1. Um, you know, there's, there's, I don't know that there's another chapter of the Bible that is hotly debated as is Genesis mm. chapter 1, so many debates. But I'm not out to debate anything. What's the point of Genesis 1? It ends with God saying, let's make mankind in our image. And so here's what I say about Genesis 1. You are more like God, Georgine, you. You are more like God than anything else God created. And so if we could just understand that, that you and I are more like God than anything else in all of creation, that changes the perspective of who we are, and it also changes what I'm capable of in my destiny. So, so there's room for debates about Genesis 1. I don't mean to discount that, but let's not miss the main point, that you and I are more like God than anything else He created. And because of that, we are deeply, deeply valued by him. Mm. In your uh, section on reflection, um, you also encourage your reader by asking a question that's very personal. It's not just, do you understand some aspect of the of the chapter you've just read, but really, how do you respond in light of what the scripture has said and in relationship to God? So they're very practical questions that are uh, designed to draw us closer to him, uh, not just in our understanding of what the scripture says, but closer to him in our relationship. And I think that's a valuable part of the way you structured your book. Yeah, it is. And, and this just comes from my habit of of the way I, I teach and preach. Um, 
You know, it's good to know theology. It's good to know the history of the Bible. But but here's the main question in everyone's mind. So what? <laughs> you know, I can know all these facts. So what? What does that mean for me right now today? And so, I, you know, whatever we're talking about in a particular chapter, I try to bring it down to a daily level. What is going to change about your life today to fulfill that destiny that we have in Christ? And, and I think every day we should be becoming like him. So, so we deal with a lot of big ideas, but this is not philosophy. This is meant to be applied theology to our lives and how we live and how we follow Jesus today. What Bible chapters do you wish you could have included in this book? <laughs> well, with 1,186 chapters, <laughs> um, there were a lot to choose from. You know, I, I am very partial to the Psalms. I love the Psalms. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer years ago wrote a little book on praying the Psalms. And he said, he said, it's not the poverty of our heart that should determine our prayers. It should be the richness of the Word of God. And so what we have, and, and many Christians don't realize this, we have a book of prayers in our Bible, the book of Psalms. And every emotion, every experience that we could possibly have, there's a prayer for that. So, so I would definitely include more of the Psalms. Specifically, Psalm 103 is one of my favorites. My soul bless the Lord, and all that is within me bless his holy name. You know, I, I find it interesting, the author of that psalm, in a way he's praying, but in a way he's talking to himself. So I, I joke with people that it's, it's biblical to talk to yourself sometimes. <laughs> bless, bless the Lord, O oh my soul. Mm. That's a wonderful psalm, and I, I wish I could have included it in that top mm, 40. Yeah, yeah. Now, how have you used these uh, 40 chapters in the good book um, in your own church, in your preaching ministry at First Tulsa? Yeah, so I've used all of them at one time or another. And again, you know, leveraging uh, 25 years of teaching and preaching, I'm just now seeing what those most essential chapters are. But, but here's, here's what I've discovered. In the last five years, as I've taught this material in small groups, and I'm very grateful for my church and helping me test and refine these 40 chapters, I've discovered that many adults come into this small group that I'll lead, and they just want a safe place to ask questions. Maybe their kids know more of the Bible than they do, because their kids are going to Sunday school. They get who Samson is and why his hair was so important. But they don't know that. And so they want a safe place where they can ask questions without anybody making fun of them. And, and I give them that place. I'll say, hey, you can ask any question you want to, uh, and I won't embarrass you. Not only at the end of eight weeks can you understand so much of Scripture, you will understand this. And so that's what I offer people even in the book, a safe place, come up to speed on the message of the Bible and the love of God. Mm. Again, we're talking about The Good Book, 40 Chapters That Reveal the Bible's Biggest Ideas, published by David C. Cook. Um, and uh, I would encourage you, There's a, there are uh, questions for individuals, reflections, or a group uh, discussion. So it really is designed to be practical, to draw us nearer to the one who authored the book, uh, the Bible, that, that those of us who know him uh, deeply love, but few of us perhaps uh, fully understand. Pastor Spoo, thank you so much for talking with us today. Georgine, I so much appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me on your program. You are so welcome. Again, the book, The Good Book, 40 Chapters That Reveal the Bible's Biggest Ideas. Deron Spoo is the author, and he is the uh, pastor of uh, First Baptist Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And for the past 16 years, he's guided the church uh, as it transitioned from being more of a local church to one that looks outward and is having an impact on the urban community uh, in that town.
Coming up in our next hour, we're going to talk about uh, a number of things. The Wall Street Journal is reporting that the former National Security Advisor, Michael Flynn, is in fact going to respond to at least some of what the Senate Intelligence Committee has uh, requested. The Supreme Court is going to rule on states' ability to clean up their voter lists. And of course, we're going to talk about the arraignment of the suspect in the Portland Max uh, train killings. Uh, He was arraigned earlier today. We'll bring you the latest uh, on that. And Mayor Wheeler uh, calling on the federal government to pull a permit for what he is referring to as an alt-right protest. I'm not really sure what that definition includes. I know how it's being used, but nonetheless, we'll talk about that effort as well. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, News and Traffic, up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show, five minutes after five o'clock. Glad to have you with us. Portions of today's program are brought to you by Zero Res. Well, the Wall Street Journal is reporting that former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn, who said he was going to plead the fifth, will in fact turn over documents related to his two businesses that have been subpoenaed by the Senate Intelligence Committee. Now, whether or not he will plead the fifth in other ways or this makes it uh, impossible to do so is not yet clear. But this is at least some movement on the part of uh, the former secretary and the investigation into his Uh, dealings with Russia. And this is his two businesses. So this would not relate specifically to his role uh, short lived as national security advisor or campaign worker, but uh, is at least related to that Senate Intelligence Committee investigation. Well, the Supreme Court agreed to hear a case involving whether Ohio's rule for cleaning up its voter rolls is too draconian, the justices announced today. And at a time when voter integrity is increasingly in the spotlight, some Uh, uh, denying that there's any difficulty, others suggesting there is. The case will put the justices front and center in that debate about how far states can go to try to make sure their roles aren't littered with the names of dead voters or people who've moved out of the jurisdiction. Now, this doesn't go to some of the other questions as to eligibility that have been debated back and forth, but voting rights advocates say uh, culling the lists ends up stripping out legal but infrequent voters who have every right to cast ballots. Ohio had been prodding people who were infrequent voters and those who, according to the Postal Service, had moved out of the state. Well, the state sends out notices if someone doesn't vote during a two-year period. If they then don't vote over the next four years and don't respond to the notices, they can be removed under state law. Well, an appeals court ruled Ohio's process is too strict, so a period of, what, six years apparently is too strict. The court also ruled the notification Ohio sends uh, uh, to those it wants to remove from its books isn't compliant with federal law. Well, in asking the Supreme Court to take the case, Ohio Attorney General Michael DeWine said states are caught between some voter integrity groups who are suing to demand better cleanup of voter rolls and voting rights groups that say cleaning up is erasing valid people from the rolls. In short, suits brought against the state, including a suit by the United States, have required uh, what the Sixth Circuit in the United States uh, said uh, was prohibited. The court uh, should not leave the states with this draconian conflicting guidance, they said. Uh, Mr. DeWine, in his petition, asking the justice to hear the case, which now they have apparently agreed uh, they will do. Whether or not this uh, results ultimately in some sort of um, resolution, um, I doubt, given where we are at this point. Well, I learned, um, as many of you did on Saturday, about what happened Friday on the Max Line Uh, leaving Lloyd Center, heading toward the Hollywood district and was stunned by the uh, the details. Uh, What we know is the suspect in Friday's deadly attack on that Max train was arraigned today. 
Jeremy Joseph Christian. He's 35. He was arraigned at the Justice Center in southwest Portland at about 2.30 this afternoon on charges of two counts of aggravated murder, two counts of intimidation in the second degree, and being a felon in possession of a restricted weapon. Having read the rap sheet, it's shocking that he was uh, here among us uh, anyway, but nonetheless, a grand jury is expected to consider other charges in the next few days. Well, Christian, which is his name and does not say anything else about his character, who's known extremist views, has known extremist views, is accused of verbally assaulting a teenage girl wearing a hijab and her friend on a max train. Uh, three good Samaritans intervene. They tried to calm the situation down. Christian is accused of slashing all three in the neck. Only one survived. Rick Best, 53, an Army veteran of Happy Valley, died on the train. Uh, Taliesin Meridin Namakai Michi, 23, a recent uh, Reed College graduate, he died in the hospital. And the third man, Micah David Cole Fletcher, 21, recovered in the hospital after another man uh, rushed to help. He, as I understand it, has now been released. Well, the perpetrator was taken into custody on the side of Providence Portland Medical Center on Friday after he fled the Max train. Detectives are investigating his background, his extremist views, and the circumstances leading up to the attack. The killings have shaken Portlanders, uh, not surprisingly. They have gathered at uh, vigils in Portland and in Tigard. State and city leaders have condemned the attack. The president, uh, likewise, called the attack unacceptable and said the victims were standing up to, uh, to hate, which cost two of them their lives. And a third uh, was uh, seriously injured as a consequence. Well, among those who were on the uh, the Max train, um, the accounts indicate that he came onto the train spewing foul language. Um, he uh, boarded the eastbound Max Green Line on Friday night at Lloyd Center. It was heading east. He was belligerent and loud from the very beginning. Uh, he has been identified or was following uh, the event not long after. He entered through uh, doors on the side of the train, stepped across the aisle to a pole by the doors on the opposite side of the train. Uh, he was screaming that he was a taxpayer, that colored people, that would be me and other black people in our community, were ruining the city and he had First Amendment's rights. Uh, then he made anti-Muslim slurs. Well, the seats on the train were all taken. Passengers were standing, but it hadn't reached the rush hour crush yet. Uh, and the train was heading toward the Hollywood station at around 4.30 p.m. A young man uh, quickly, while talking on his phone, got up and started moving toward him. He, he looked nervous. Uh, this was the 23-year-old who had uh, recently graduated from Reed College. 53-year-old Rick Bass stood closest to the perpetrator. He was trying to calm him down by letting him know that he had heard him. He was repeating, for example, back what this guy was saying, like, I know you're a taxpayer. He was kind of trying to affirm that he was being heard to try to settle things down. But this is uh, not OK. You're scaring people, he went on to say uh, in the most detailed chronology of the chaos. The perpetrator um, just kept shouting. He uh, started started uh, talking even louder. And at one point, the train operator got on the loudspeaker saying that whoever was creating the a disturbance needed to exit the train immediately. The operator also threatened to call the police. Well, the perpetrator screamed out that he was getting off the train at the next stop and that if anyone expletive followed, they were going to die. Well, the Reed College graduate turned back toward Christian, the perpetrator, and briskly walked over to him, loudly implored him, you need to get off this train, please get off the train. And again, this was the most of the attention was focused on these two girls, uh, one African-American, one wearing a hijab. Well, um, passenger Best and the uh, two others, uh, Michael, Micah David Cole and 
uh, Namkai Machi, uh, was trying to um, de-escalate the situation uh, to intervene and get the perpetrator off the train. Two teenage girls who were the target of his racist rants were seated there. And if the men who were stabbed were trying to be a barrier between uh, him and the girls, uh, they succeeded at least in that. Someone attempted to move him away from the girls. He was verbally harassing. Touch me again, he said, and I'm going to kill you. Um, uh, and uh, one of the uh, uh, heroes, if you will, was holding his phone. It's not clear if he was uh, filming the event or if he was talking to someone, but he hid away the phone. The perpetrator hid away the phone and stabbed him first in the neck. It was swift and hard, said one passenger. It was a nightmare. He looked at the other passengers. He cursed at them, uh, stabbing two others, and then he fled. Um, these heroes attempted to protect these girls, not knowing the extent to which uh, the perpetrator was willing to go. He had threatened, we heard from another account, that he was going to behead, um, decapitate people on the train. They didn't know that he was really capable of at least making the attempt, and yet that was the threat that was made before these three men got up and, try- and tried to de-escalate the situation. Uh, there was an Arab-American, an African-American. They felt threatened by this man uh, that had not yet revealed his knife but was uh, verbally loud, Uh, threatening three rows to try to protect them. And we know the rest of that story. Uh, Portland's mayor said the the, uh, Max attack is an act of terrorism and the federal government is looking into that designation as well as uh, as designating it a hate crime. Although any crime of this magnitude, it seems to me, is to some degree uh, at its root uh, motivated by hate. In the wake of all of this, the Portland mayor has called for the federal government to pull its permit from a, uh, two events that were scheduled for next Sunday, June the 4th, and a second uh, later in the month. We'll tell you more about that in just a few moments. Uh, but this has certainly been a, an event that has shaken Portland, uh, the metro area, to its core. You have someone who identifies himself as uh, being hateful. We know, uh, for example, there was an early attempt to link him, for example, to the the Trump movement. We do know now that he was a Stein supporter, that he is known in this city for having expressed his hatred of Jews, Muslims and Christians. He hated Hillary Clinton because of her support of refugees. He hated Trump supporters for a variety of reasons. So he was um, someone who was off the uh, the mainstream in any of the camps that one might anticipate. Um, but an attempt to link him to one particular point of view has led the, the mayor to call for the federal government to pull the permit for what he is uh, describing as an alt-right protest scheduled for next Sunday. We'll talk more about that in just a few moments, uh, but we do need to take a, a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back 20 minutes after 5 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Later this hour, we're going to talk with Brittany Hughes. She's with the Media Research Center TV, interpreting Planned Parenthood's annual report that was released earlier today. Well, Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler is calling for the federal government to pull its permit from an alt-right, as he described it, protest scheduled for next Sunday. Uh, Trump Free Speech Rally Portland is scheduled to begin at 2 p.m. at federally controlled Terry Shrunk Park in downtown Portland. Another protest, hashtag marked against Sharia, is scheduled for Saturday, June the 10th, also at Terry Shrunk Park. Now, Joey Gibson is a Vancouver resident, a video blogger. He's organizing both events. He has invited Kyle Chapman, an online celebrity known as uh, Based Stickman, to the uh, rally on the 4th. Chapman was arrested at a Berkeley, California rally earlier this year on charges of suspected felony assault when he allegedly hit a left-wing protester in the head with a signpost. 
Um, uh, the mayor said in the news conference, my concern is they're coming here to peddle a message of hatred and bigotry. They have a First Amendment right to speak, but hate speech is not protected. Well, it is protected, uh, uh, Mayor Wheeler. Uh, nonetheless, he has suggested that because the message is um, in favor of apparently Trump and free speech, that that is somehow going to cross the line over into uh, hate speech. I'm not sure there's evidence to um, to back that up. But the ACLU of Oregon tweeted the mayor cannot revoke or deny a permit based on the viewpoint of the demonstrators. Now, we're not clear what the viewpoint of the demonstrators is. We do know that one of the speakers opposed left wing demonstrators in California and faces uh, assault charges as a consequence. But in terms of whether or not this is hate speech, he, the mayor, nor has anyone else, at least at this point, uh, offered evidence um, suggesting that would be the case. I don't know if it is or not. I'm just saying there is an evidence that's been presented. Uh, we are all free, the ACLU of Oregon went on to say, to reject and protest ideas we don't agree with. That is a core fundamental freedom of the United States. The alt-right, again in quotes, group has pledged to fight and let's see, Antifa, a group of militant leftists, uh, KATU's news partners at Willamette Week wrote in-depth uh, pieces explaining what each group stands for and why they've taken to Portland streets to fight each other. So this could be quite a clash. Um, the uh, group that's holding the event in uh, uh, in Portland and the group that will oppose them, the Antifa group of militant leftists, um, uh, apparently facing off. Well, Mayor Wheeler's statement comes several days after the killing of two men and the injury of a third. Uh, Jerry Christian was, of course, arrested on murder and attempted murder. The mayor has said that he is not suggesting the event be uh, prevented altogether, but that the timing is poor, making a link between what happened on the MAX train and what's likely to happen on Sunday at this event. And again, maybe the mayor knows something we don't, but I think he should certainly uh, express and explain what he thinks is at the core of this group that's meeting. Well, the mayor says he has asked the city of Portland not to issue any permits for alt-right protests, despite the fact that we've had a number of uh, protests on the left that have uh, become rather violent. Uh, which he has refused to provide sufficient protection for the businesses downtown and residents in the city. But he says the fourth, uh, the June 4th rally is being held at Shrunk Plaza, which the federal government controls. Our city is in mourning. Our community's anger is real. And the timing and subject of these events can only exacerbate an already uh, difficult situation. Now, the thrust of the June 4th event is free speech. I'm not sure how that is um, exacerbating the situation. But again, this is the mayor's perspective. Um, after Wheeler made the announcement in a Facebook post, um, uh, Mr. Gibson rejected the mayor's call. He's the organizer for the federal government to pull his group's permit, citing his right to free speech and suggesting that if the event is not permitted, it could get out of control. Mayor Wheeler will not convince me to cancel the rally. I will not do that for several reasons, he said. One reason is that if I cancel this rally and if we don't have a permit, you're talking about hundreds of people just showing up in the park with no leadership, no voice of reason, nothing. He added that if he canceled the event, his group would not be able to control who comes in and out of the park. If they pull our permits, we cannot kick out the white supremacists. We cannot kick out the Nazis, he said. Our speakers aren't going to be filled with any hate, Gibson went on to say. He said his uh, group has nothing to do with the stabbing suspect. So the back and forth continues. The ACLU has stood on the side of uh, freedom of speech, uh, and uh, the mayor continues to push for the federal government to withdraw uh, the permit, which is not likely to happen, even under these uh, these circumstances. It certainly is true that the city is uh, mourning the loss of its uh, its heroes who stood in the face of 
a threat and tried to defend those who were less capable of defending themselves. These two women who were uh, being assaulted verbally by uh, a man who was um, incoherent, rather loud and uh, threatened violence. Um, But shutting down free speech does not seem to be uh, the answer to the situation. Well, this has been a difficult uh, period for the city of Portland. And I hope that for those of us who um, who understand that evil exists, who understand the source of it and the remedy for it, that we are prepared to speak the truth to in love in, in these times, to recognize that uh, we have a role to play in helping to soothe the, uh, the anger, the frustration, and even the hateful response, perhaps, of those uh, around us who are so angry by this, uh, this injustice. It's been heartening to see citizens of our community in an area not far from my home um, uh, respond in such a way to read some of the messages that were posted uh, in chalk on the cement around the area where these events took place, uh, emphasizing that love is the answer, love is the right response. Of course, justice is also called for in the case of an individual whose speech is not uh, just called into question, but his actions that resulted in the uh, the death of uh, two and the serious injury of another uh, who is now facing charges. As I mentioned earlier, he had quite a rap sheet and it was surprising to see um, some of the things that he had been held um, for by law enforcement in the past. So it it should not have been altogether surprising. There's video of him spouting um, his uh, worldview in uh, other cases that I mentioned. He uh, has espoused hatred for Jews and for Muslims, hatred for Christians uh, he was uh, espoused a hatred for Hillary Clinton because of her support of refugees. He espoused hatred for Trump supporters, and he himself was a Stein supporter, despite the fact that many have tried to draw a link between he and support of, of Donald Trump. But evil exists among us, and while it would be nice to be able to look into faces of our neighbors and recognize who is capable of violence and who is not, we don't have that power. What we do have the power to do, however, is to... Um, to speak the truth in love, to behave in a way that's, that is um, supportive of those who are weaker among us, uh, and certainly to be willing to lay our lives down for the sake of others when danger, uh, danger lurks. It, it's, it was amazing to read the stories of the three men who came forward uh, to try to uh, de-escalate the situation, having no idea where this ultimately uh, would end. Uh, one survived, two did not. Um, those who came as first responders who were on that uh, on that train, some had come from other cars uh, to try to support those who had been injured with uh, life support uh, and, um, and other CPR techniques to try to um, sustain them until uh, first responders could come. That's first responders and law enforcement would come, not knowing what danger they might face in order to protect those who remained in the area. I read about those who uh, cradled the heads of of those who were dying to offer comfort, that uh, one who provided CPR left a message for the family uh, simply saying your loved one was not alone, that they were surrounded by people who comforted them and tried to help them. Uh, And it's it's comforting and it's encouraging to hear uh, that those kinds of people live among us here in the Portland metro area. I know it, uh, it causes many of us to fear the prospect of riding on mass transit. We hear of all kinds of events that take place that undermine our, our confidence. Uh, but it is, on the other hand, encouraging to hear that there are those who, uh, who came to provide their support and encouragement at this very dark time. We need to pray for our city. Uh, we need to be uh, prepared to uh, comfort those who are 
um, are grieving and certainly the families. There is, in fact, an opportunity to help pay for the hospital expenses of one of the um, one of the heroes in this uh, event on Friday. And you can check that out if you'd like to provide uh, what was unexpected medical costs for this young man who I believe has now been released uh, from the hospital and attended the arraignment that took place earlier today. There are a number of charges that have already been filed, and as the grand jury reviews this situation, we believe that there will be additional charges filed uh, against this uh, this individual. Over the weekend, I had an opportunity to meet with a, a group of people that I'm planning to travel to Cuba with later uh, this summer, and one of them, um, Judge um, uh, Judge Tom, uh, his his daughter had been murdered and has been involved since that event in a, sort of a reconciliation uh, ministry of uh, forgiveness. Uh, and I thought a lot about him and what he has learned through the death of his daughter, whose life was taken by a perpetrator who was eventually caught. Uh, he established a relationship with that individual uh, and has been able to not only share the gospel with him, but with others in prison as well. And that has become his his ministry. And I think about the individual who is responsible for this tragedy, that while he is a reprehensible person who did the unthinkable uh, and took the lives of innocents, as we're praying for the families of those lost and those girls who were threatened and frightened, we need to pray for the perpetrator as well. Um, I think that's what God would want us to do. Ultimately, justice is in his hands, uh, but to see his life transformed for him to recognize the error of his ways would certainly be Uh, the right thing. Up next, we're going to talk with Brittany Hughes, Media Research Center TV. We'll talk about the Planned Parenthood annual report just released today. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, after a six-month delay, Planned Parenthood has finally released its annual report for the 2015-16 fiscal year, which ended the 30th of June, 2016. In other words, Planned Parenthood took nearly an entire year to assemble a 35-page document, most of which is PR, well, pablum, about the group's supposedly essential role in U.S. politics and the healthcare industry. But it should be no surprise that the report is full of obfuscation, some of which tries and fails to refute the undercover videos released by the Center for Medical Progress. An investigative group in July of 2015, uh, videos seem to depict evidence that Planned Parenthood has long been profiteering from selling the body parts of aborted babies. We're here to talk about this new report released by Planned Parenthood, the number of abortions, and whether or not it does serve an essential function in uh, our community. Uh, joining us to talk about just that is Brittany Hughes. She's with the Media Research Center TV. Thank you so much for joining us. Glad to be here anytime. Well, this report is produced by Planned Parenthood itself. And what is it designed to, to do to give some perspective on what they do to give raw numbers? What's the purpose of this annual report? So Planned Parenthood releases this every year. They've been doing it since um, even before Roe v. Wade. And what it essentially does is it's kind of a, a end-of-the-year fiscal report um, to, to break down their services. And it, is, it, event, it actually is more of a marketing gimmick. Let's just put it that way. It's a way for Planned Parenthood to kind of market themselves and say all the things that they do and all the great things and all the, you know, all the high school kids that they've managed to indoctrinate and all this and um, also to give a list to their donors. So this is something that Planned Parenthood does, does voluntarily um, by law because they are a nonprofit. They're required to release certain forms, but this is one that they put out themselves. It's a way to kind of present 
themselves the way that they want to be seen as, you know, this force for good in the world, as if, you know, the country couldn't run without them and, and all these women would be healing over from cancer if, you know, they, they didn't exist. And the, the simple fact is that that's not true. And the evidence to back that claim up is right there in the Planned Parenthood annual reports. It's very clear from their own admissions that they do not do nearly as much as they would like the country to think that they do. Um, for example, this year alone, or rather last year alone, this is the, the latest annual mm-hmm. report is for the 2015-16 fiscal year. First of all, it, it's worthy of noting that this thing came out like four to five months past its usual release date. These, these reports are usually released in December, early January at the latest. Here we are at the end of May, and this thing is just now coming out, and you cannot help but know that the election had something to do with that. They did not want to put this thing out. They have come under heavy scrutiny, and they knew that. So they just put out this report, and it details that the organization performed over 328,000 abortions last year. 328,000. That accounts for about a third of all the abortions that are performed in the United States annually. But if you compare this to the other services that they claim to offer, let's take you know breast exams, for example. Out of the millions of women that are in America, Planned Parenthood only performed about 320,000 breast exams last year. Now, we're not talking about mammograms. Planned Parenthood does not own a single mammogram machine. They can't do them. They don't have the technicians. They have to refer women out for mammograms. These are just breast exams, and if they find something suspicious, then they then refer you to someone who can actually tell you what's going on. So that's a very, very low number of breast exams when you think of the millions of women that are getting them every single year. I mean, the same exact thing goes for pap smears. They're performing only about 1.2% of the nation's entire pap test for women. And they want to build themselves as this organization that's providing all of this health care to women that women wouldn't be able to get elsewhere, which is kind of ridiculous if you consider they have about 650 or so clinics nationwide, and there's, what, 13,000-plus health care clinics that otherwise offer these services. Planned Parenthood is providing a teeny, tiny portion of other health-related services to women by their own admission. By the, own, by the numbers that are in their own reports, but they're performing a third of the nation's abortions. It does not take a rocket scientist to figure out what the role is that they play here for women. They are in the business of terminating pregnancies, not providing health care to women, but terminating pregnancies. And I think that this report, like all the ones that have come before it, makes that extremely clear. Mm. In terms of uh, contraceptives, the numbers are down there as well. The birth control pills and other uh, um, prophylactics, uh, the, the number of women they're providing them for, that is down as well. That is true. Um, you know, last year, the number of abortions that Planned Parenthood provided by, their, by the numbers that they offered was about 5,000, a little less than 5,000 more abortions, more abortions than the year before. So the number of abortions has actually gone up between 2014 and the 2015-16 fiscal year. So the number of abortions has gone up. At that same time frame, according to their own numbers now that were released in their own voluntary report, they provided contraceptives, reversible contraceptives. So we're, we're not talking about Plan B or anything like that. We're talking about birth control pills, patches, um, IUDs, that, those kinds of things. They provided 70,000 fewer women with reversible contraceptives than the year before. So even as the number of abortions went up, 
the number of contraceptives that they that they were providing, which is what they, they claimed to be the most famous for, was actually dropping. Now, of course, you you have to wait, um, you know, for for subsequent years to see if this is going to become a pattern. But it's very interesting for a group that has been embattled this past year to explain why they believe they are not in the business of abortion so much as they are in the business of healthcare for women, and that abortion is supposedly only three percent of the services that they do. Why is it then that the number of contraceptives they're providing is going down, the number of abortions that they provided is going up? That doesn't seem to make sense for an organization that says that it does far fewer abortions and that that's not its main goal. Mm -hmm. Uh, You also point out in your uh, article on the subject that Planned Parenthood still netted $553.7 million. That's about 43 percent of its roughly $1.3 billion total revenue uh, from state uh, and local funding, as well as Medicaid payments. So the funding has not adjusted to the reduction in services that they tout as being their primary function. Well, absolutely not. And it never is. And they they have collectively gotten about a half of their budget from the government and from Medicaid reimbursements every single year. Now, this is including state and local governments, and each state and locality has its own set of regulations on whether or not they provide money to places like Planned Parenthood for abortion. Some states do, some states don't. The federal government does not in terms of actually putting money towards the abortion itself, but as anybody could tell you who understands basic finances, money is fungible. So when Planned Parenthood gets reimbursed for services, that they can then charge to Medicaid for when low-income women come in and they, they may get a breast exam or, or a pap test done. Those services then get billed to Medicaid. Well, the money that Planned Parenthood reimburses from Medicaid also goes to keep the lights on. It goes for, to pay the staff. It goes for the instrumentation. So you're, you're talking about money being drawn in from the federal government that's going to facilitate a clinic that also performs abortions, which is something that the pro-life community has been very upset about, and rightly so, for many years. This is an organization whose stock and trade is in killing infants. At the end of the day, even if you look at Planned Parenthood's, Planned Parenthood's own numbers and nothing but those numbers, it's very, very obvious that this is exactly what they do. This is their main trade. If that were to go away, I don't see, based on their numbers, how they could continue to exist. That is where they get their money. That is where they get their notoriety. That is what they're famous for. So all of this money that they're drawing in from grants, from localities, from all these different state, federal, local government sources, it's going to fund an organization that makes its living off of killing children. And this is something that I think, as you know, as Planned Parenthood puts out these reports, the media is not going to concentrate on that. This mm-hmm. isn't something that's going to get widely, you know, widely known. Of course, you know, videos can come out showing Planned Parenthood officials talking openly about selling human tissue, and this doesn't seem to get a whole lot of reaction these days. But this is something that the American public needs to know, because this is where many millions of our dollars are going. And I think it's it's an important discussion that we need to have. What is Planned Parenthood actually using that money for? What is it actually doing? And is it actually necessary? The answer in Planned Parenthood's own report seems to be no. Well, I appreciate your bringing this to our attention, putting it into perspective, and we'll certainly continue to follow what happens in Washington in terms of whether or not Planned Parenthood continues to receive public funds. Brittany Hughes, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much. Appreciate it very much. Again, Brittany is with the Media Research Center TV. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we are back for the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show.
Well, in May of 1948, late snow melt, some heavy rains. They threatened communities all along the Columbia River. The Oregonian reminds us of this occasion. Vanport was built... It was be- built behind a dike, once uh, Oregon's second largest city. It had its own schools and stores, police and movie theaters. The city sat on 650 acres of swamp land where the Expo Center, the Raceway and the Golf Course are today. It once housed thousands who came to build ships for World War II. Well, after the war, about 18,500 people still lived there. And on the morning of May the 30th, officials assured them that the dike was safe. But just after 4 p.m., it broke. A 10-foot wall of water descended, warning sirens sounded, thousands fled, many with only the clothes on their back. Evacuees in waist-deep water formed human chains. Motorists are caught in a traffic jam at North Denver Avenue. That was the city's lone exit. The rushing water toppled buildings. Parents tossed children from second-story windows. The Columbia River peaked at 31 feet above normal. When the flooding was over, Vanport's people were scattered. The 5,000 African-American residents concentrated in the Albina district, which became the heart of the historic black community. Well, this year marks the 75th anniversary of the town's founding. Next week marks the 69th anniversary of the flood that destroyed it. More than a dozen people died. The city was reduced to rubble. And now the flood survivors keep the memories of Vanport alive, but they alone remember what happened on that day May the 30th, 1948, it changed the city and thousands of lives forever. There's a documentary that was produced a couple of years ago that's really fascinating. If you don't know much about Vanport, you can probably uh, Google it and find out more. But um, it was played last year on OPB, and it was just a fascinating look back. I've heard about Vanport all my life. My mother would tell me stories of what happened there. Uh, She, of course, didn't live there, but was familiar with the community and what happened on that date in 1948. So it's been an interesting um, uh, project to sort of discover more of the details of what happened. And the the survivors who remain in the uh, metro area are full of stories of what the town was like and what it was like the day the flooding took place. It's really amazing that only 12 people lost their lives. Of course, that's 12 too many. But uh, given the details... uh, 12 is a, a number far lower than I would have expected. Nonetheless, uh, this marks the uh, one of those anniversaries. Well, a Catholic priest who claims he was kidnapped alongside more than 240 hostages by fighters linked to the Islamic State in the Philippines appealed to President Rodrigo Duarte to stop this vicious terror spree. In a video that surfaced on Facebook, the Reverend uh, Vicar General of the Prelate Uh, There pleaded with the president of the country to consider the lives of the hostages, most of whom are Christian. He asked the president to stop the airstrikes and air attacks. Well, in the past week, gunmen linked to um, one of the terror groups there, a commander of a militant group who has pledged allegiance to ISIS, swept into the city. This is Marawi. Uh, on the island, uh, on an island, rather, burning buildings, seizing uh, the, uh, the the priest, his worshipers, and raising black flags of terror uh, over facilities. Mr. President, please follow your heart. Please consider us, he said, according to the local news. You know it's hard, Mr. President. From time to time, we hear the outbursts of guns from our ground of, uh, of enemies, heavy firearms from your side. It's hard. We added that they uh, don't ask for anything. They just ask that you uh, leave the place peacefully. Don't uh, give us uh, give so many attacks. The city uh, in uh, my background is ruined like this. Apparently, the back and forth is 
um, focusing primarily, or at least impacting primarily, the Christians in that community in the Philippines. And then, of course, over the weekend, the death toll of a deadly night nighttime bombing outside a popular ice cream shop in central Baghdad. Uh, That toll has risen to 31. ISIS militants claimed responsibility. The Iraqi officials said families with children were enjoying a late night snack after uh, breaking their first uh, fast of Ramadan. Uh, When the explosives uh, went off, a closed circuit camera video of the explosion shows a busy downtown uh, avenue with cars driving up and down the street when a massive blast strikes. Then a huge fireball engulfs the building, forcing the cars to scramble to get away. Uh, videos of the attack posted on social media showed wounded and bloodied people crying for help on the sidewalk outside the ice cream parlor. And the attacks came as ISIS militants are steadily losing more territory to U.S.-backed Iraqi forces in the battle for Mosul, the country's second largest city. The Sunni extremists are increasingly uh, turning to ex- insurgency-style terror attacks to detract from their losses and thus paints a rather brutal picture of the world around us. And uh, certainly reason for us to fervently pray uh, that, that that righteousness would prevail, that uh, God's people would stand as uh, witness to what is right and true and pray for those who are suffering, whether they are Christian or in the case of uh, Baghdad, uh, those Muslims who were um, the target of ISIS, which is more often than not the case. Finally, I just wanted to say thank you on behalf of the children of the Caribbean and Latin America that will benefit from your efforts uh, that took place last week as we partnered with Food for the Poor. It's not often that I get an update as to, you know, how well the campaign went, how closely we reached our goal and how many people are going to be uh, helped, lives transformed as a consequence of our time Uh, here on the station, and your generosity. Well, I'm proud to report that through your efforts, we exceeded the uh, the goal that was established by Food for the Poor. We raised enough money to provide uh, food for a year and water for life for 341 children in the countries we were focusing on, primarily Guatemala and Haiti, but again, the Caribbean and Latin America. So I just wanted to, to take a moment before we close today and say thank you for your generosity. I know we come with some regularity, and it can be a challenge to hear the stories of suffering from various places around the world, when to give, when not. To, you've already given, or maybe you have something you're looking forward to that's closer to home. Uh, but there are enough of us that together we can help uh, serve the poor communities of the world. And uh, certainly that was the case when Food for the Poor was here last week. So I just wanted to say thank you, thank you, thank you. Well, tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with Randy Frazee. He's the author of What Happens When You Die, A Biblical Guide to Paradise, to Hell, and Life After Death. So this is a good opportunity to consider not just what popular thinking is, but what the scriptures actually teach. That's coming up tomorrow with Randy Frazee. I want to thank Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, James Blend for engineering a portion of and producing all of today's program, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
the explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.